Okay. Now, before we actually get into our study tonight, we, we certainly want to pray, but even before that, I'm going to have Brad come up and, and share a word. Uh, Brad, if you know him, he's been part of our fellowship from the beginning and uh, has been facing uh, cancer for the last year. He's really gone through uh, very serious, very significant treatment over at the Moffitt Center in Tampa and, and has really um, even... Today, he, was in, he got up early this morning, went to Tampa, and just came back and got here and came straight to Bible study. So, amen. amen. Come on up, Brad. He said, I just want to give a word to the, to the church. So I think that's wonderful. Amen. A lot of people missed it. Yep. And, uh, Go ahead. Oh, he's going to preach tonight. Yeah, no, you. No way, I'm playing with you. But uh, yes, it's today's the first night that I was able to come. I got to a point to, yesterday. I needed to make some decisions on priorities. Is so I'm, I'm going to let my this cancer control my life and what I do and don't do. And, and make excuses that I can't attend church events, or will I make a, a line in the sand and say, no, I can't do it on Wednesdays at all. I'm busy on Wednesdays, and I chose this. I'm going to do this on Wednesdays. Amen. We, Wonderful. We also have a men's group, ironically, mm -hmm. that meets on Wednesday mornings in here, and they've been here now four weeks. Yes. And I have not been able to, to attend that, and I've been doing that, non-stop when I was able to, even by phone, uh, you know, through the internet. But God has been good. This week has been a huge progress week. April is a year that I was diagnosed, multiple myeloma. And uh, it was a very favorable outcome, stage one. There's three stages. So I was blessed just to be able to get that news of hope. And then I went through 14 weeks of extensive comprehensive treatment, chemo treatment, and then at Moffitt in December, the month of December, a bone marrow transplant. And it was the hardest thing I ever did in my mm. life. But it, I'm here today. I'm improving every day. Amen. Uh, I got a clean bill of health this week. Praise Amen. God. Amen. And the multiple myeloma, zero, Amen. zero traceable cancer. Praise God. Wow. But there is a down, a flip side. There's always something more. You know, we talk about <laughs> it's a walk of faith. There's more adversity even when we finish adversity. So there is a, a growth that I was there today that they're reevaluating inside my lung. And it, it, it would not be, if it is cancer, it would not be multiple myeloma. It would be something else if it is that. So, but still, you can let things like that consume you. That's the third test I've had in this week. They're trying to understand that. And I said, if they call me today and I'm home, I'll make an appointment when we can. I'm not going to go tomorrow or the next day or next week or next Wednesday. I'm going to go when I need to be able to go and make yeah. that. So I'm thankful to be here tonight. Amen. I'm going to enjoy this time with y'all, fellowship. And it's just amazing. The group has grown a lot. Amen. Amen. Good to see you, brother. Praise God. 
That's wonderful. So glad that he shared with us tonight. That's a blessing. Well, let's pray. And, and uh, there are uh, several folks in the body who are facing cancer, and we've been lifting them up. Our elders pray every single day. We are texting back and forth, lifting up needs, learning of new needs. Uh, Jackie McClellan keeps us informed of anything new coming across her desk, and so we're very thankful that we see the power of prayer working in our church. And Brad is a great example of that. So we need to continue to pray. So let's do that right now as a church. Well, Lord, uh, to gather together inside this building and to enjoy the fellowship of one another, enjoy some coffee and a little refreshment, and uh, most of all, to enjoy the Word of God. We give thanks to you for this privilege, and we ask that now you would just really help us to focus in on the Word of God and to receive that sub subjective work of the Holy Spirit who is filling us tonight with truth. And we are so thankful for uh, Brad being able to join us tonight and hearing the good report of zero myeloma. We thank you for that. We, we pray that now you would uh, continue to work and touch his body if there's anything else in the lung area. We pray in Jesus' name for his touch and healing. And we pray the same for several other members of our church who are facing difficulties. And we just give you praise and honor that we have a God we can always turn to because you are a God always available, never. You said, if you are in a time of need, uh, come boldly into my throne of grace and you'll receive help when you need it. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, she had it today, the oh, biopsy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Shirley Morgan had a biopsy today, and so they don't, she, it'll be several days or maybe even up to a week before she'll have a result. But we were, uh, the elders were on that this morning praying for Shirley. She had a 7.30 appointment. So if you have any needs like that or you know of a need, please communicate that to us. You can either call the church office, even if the phone if no one picks up, uh, leave a message because Deb is faithful to check that regularly. And then also we have the info at, is it VeroBibleFellowship.org? Is there a shorter version, Deb? No. Okay, so info, I-N-F-O, at VeroBibleFellowship.org, not .com. And we, we check that continuously and we add those, those requests to the list. Okay? Good. Take your Bibles, turn, if you will, to 1 Kings. Tonight we are in chapter 2. And uh, it's going to be such a joy to go through 1 Kings. I was just getting ahead of myself even today, looking at some of the chapters in front of us and looking at how we're going to start focusing on Elijah after a little while here. And I, he's, he's probably one of my favorite prophets. And then, of course, right on the heel of Elijah is Elisha. And uh, again, another great man of God and how God used those men to try and steer Israel away from apostasy, away from false gods and false religion, and, and, and to get them to return to the Lord. And so we just got some great days ahead of us. So tonight I hope that this ministers to you, chapter 2, it is the Word of God and therefore it has power and it never returns void. Would you agree? Amen. All right. In verse 1, when David's time to die drew near, 
he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. That is an interesting phraseology, isn't it? I am about to go the way of all the earth. So David, the son of Jesse, Israel's greatest king, recognized that he, he recognized that he was a man like every other man and that he shared a common destiny. I'm going to go the way of all the earth. The, anything that lives on this earth has a lifespan and a death. Everything. David, even though he was the greatest king of Israel, still had his feet on the ground, had a humility about him, and knew that he was no better than any other man when it comes to the sovereignty of God, God loving everybody. And David had a time to live, and God said that David has a time to die like anyone else. And that's just, there's something in that. You see the frailty, you see the humility, you see the humanity of David. And I don't know what that does for you, but as I study the, uh, David, that just really blesses me. Because there were times where David uh, became very arrogant. David uh, extended beyond God and was doing things without seeking the Lord. There were times where he was in sin. But yet, here he's at the end of his life. He is absolutely right back where he needs to be, completely humbled before the Lord and, and recognizing, I'm not special. And so now it's my time to go the way of all the earth. I just think that's neat. He said, be strong and show yourself a man. Again, now back in verse one, the first part of the verse, he commanded Solomon, his son. What we're reading right here in chapter two is a charge that he is giving his son. You, you all know what that's like when someone that's very near to you, somebody maybe a patriarch in your family or a matriarch, and they are coming close to death and you know that the words that they're going to be sharing at the close of their life are probably very important words. What they're going to say at the very close, it's down to an economy of words. They're not going to ramble and go forever. But what they say is going to have great meaning and value. Well, that's where David is. And he's going to give in that final time with his son, I'm going to give a charge. I'm going to challenge my son as he becomes the next king of Israel. And so that's what happens here. We're talking about, he says, here's what he says to young Solomon. And by the way, how old was Solomon when David gave this charge to him to be the king? Did anybody remember or anybody, any, anyone know? 71? No, not Solomon, not David. Now David was 70. You were, you were very close, Steve. But Solomon, his son, he was a teenager, 16 years old. How many of you would vote for a president of the United States that's a 16-year-old? <laughs> oh, man, did I walk into that one? <laughs> I walked right into that one. Oh, man. Man, oh, man. I just want to say to our online audience, uh, not everything that's said here is... Anyway, whatever. So... Um, <laughs> so he's speaking to a 16-year-old son, and he's saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. So David was a man who spent time in the wilderness. What did he do in the wilderness? He, he did battles for the Lord. He killed giants. He leapt over a wall. 
He risked his life on numerous occasions for the sake of his God. Solomon, on the other hand, was raised in the house of the king. He had never been chased by an enemy. He never stared down a giant. So this father obviously recognized this boy had not gone the path that he traveled. And now he's about to be the king. This is God's choice. So the encouraging word is, be strong and show yourself a man. Um, If Absalom had not had such a terrible character flaw and had not done things that were grievous before God and before his father and had been a good son, Absalom would have been a better king because Absalom understood war. Absalom was much more like his dad in that way. But that's not who God chose. Isn't it interesting how sometimes we're looking at someone, that's the person, that's the person that needs to be the next leader of this or that or whatever. I just really think they're special. They've got something. But yet that might not be God's choice. God might choose somebody that doesn't fit the part from your view. But we're not really after our view, are we? We shouldn't be. The church of Jesus Christ does not belong to any of us. Even though we are the church, without people you have no church. You can have buildings, you still don't have a church without people. But the people aren't the ones in charge of the church. Jesus died for the church. Jesus is the leader of the church. Jesus is the one who said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And so we have to go the way of the Lord. And sometimes that rubs a little bit against what we think. Well, I really think this guy or this gal is the one. It doesn't matter what you think. It matters what the Lord wants. And we have to follow Him. Amen? Amen. Well, this is what David's doing. I'm sure if it was just a, a case of looking at the physical presence of a person, he might not have chosen Solomon. But that's not what it's about. It's about having a heart after God. And David had that. So he looks at Absalom or Solomon and he says, you know, Solomon doesn't have what uh, I had, but he's God's choice. So I'm just going to encourage him. I'm going to say, be strong and show yourself a man. And that's what happens here. Verse 3, and keep the charge of the Lord your God. Man, that is, look what he says. The final words of David to his son Solomon. And right out of the gate, you stay faithful to God. You follow the way of the Lord. Keep the charge of the Lord your God. Look what he says. He, he spells it out very specifically. Walking in his ways. Keeping his statutes. His commandments his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. This is a very powerful statement that David is making because not only does he say, follow the way of the Lord, he even becomes specific. Walk in his ways, keep the statutes, keep the commandments, keep the rules, keep the Lord's testimony. He's very specific. David believed in 
the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, all he had to go on was the Old Testament scrolls. There were certain scrolls that existed. They had written down the laws of Moses. They, he had the first five books, the Pentateuch. He had that. And so he's saying, that is the answer. You'll find the answer, the prosperity that, that God wants you to have is found in the first five books that you obey. Obey them. Follow them. So here David is actually, and not that they didn't only have the first five, they had other books too, but the Bible has still, is still being written at this time, you know, the Old Testament. David is really honing in here on the, the sufficiency of Scripture. And this, these words that David is sharing, they're probably triggered by something that David actually wrote in a song when he was a young man. There's a lot of similarity. It's Psalm 19. Take your Bible, turn to Psalm 19. If I can just share with you, Psalm 19 is a... In Psalm 19, there are three verses that are a summary statement of Psalm 119. You do know Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. 175 verses. Psalm 19 verses 7 through 9 are a concise summary of the comprehensive Psalm 119 in its total. And it's really cool. Let me read it for you. Verse 7 if you want to follow along. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In these three verses, David gives a complete statement on the sufficiency of Scripture. He does it in an economy of words. These three verses summarize the entire Psalm 119. Now, here's the interesting thing. This is the Bible's own testimony to its power and its comprehensive sufficiency. And I want you to see this. If you look more closely, you can see the genius of God in these three verses. There are six lines in three verses. Six lines. Two in verse 7, two in verse 8, two in verse 9. Six lines. Each of the six lines has three elements. So all six lines contain three elements. Each has, and here are the three elements if you want to write them down. Titles, characteristics, and benefits. Titles, characteristics, and benefits. Every single line has those three things, okay? Now, first, there are six titles for Scripture. These are titles, some of them, that you've never heard. But the Bible says this is the title for the Word of God, okay? Two in each verse. In verse 7, the law of the Lord. We've all heard that, haven't we? The law of the Lord. The next one, the testimony of the Lord. That's another title for the Word of God. Thirdly, in verse 8, precepts of the Lord. And then also, commandment of the Lord. And in the last verse, verse 9, the fear of the Lord. Have you ever heard a title for God's Word, the fear of the Lord? 
I was reading the fear of the Lord today. That's what it is, though. That's how you approach the Word of God. With great fear, understanding the reverence. This is God's Word. If you're going to be in awe of something, be in awe of the Word of God. And then the last one in, in verse 9, rules of the Lord. Rules. In, in, in the, uh, I want to say the NASB, it says judgments of the Lord instead of rules. So those are the titles for Scripture. It's the law, it's, a, it's law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, and rules. Now, secondly, there, there, there are not just titles, but there are six characteristics of Scripture. First, it's perfect. Next, it's sure. Next, it's right. Next, it's pure. And when you see the word pure, think of the word clear. That's what pure means here. It's clear. And then it's clean. And finally, it's true. Six characteristics of Scripture. Six titles, six characteristics. Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true. And then we thirdly, on top of the six titles and six characteristics, you have six benefits of Scripture. Let me give them to you. It says in verse 7, it revives the soul. It also says in verse 7, it makes wise the simple. It also says in verse 8, rejoices the heart. Also enlightens the eyes. Verse 9, endures forever. And the last one, righteous altogether, which means that the Word of God produces comprehensive righteousness. Now you just were given in three verses six titles, six characteristics, and six benefits of the Word of God. And don't you see the similarity to what David is saying in the charge to young Solomon, 16-year-old Solomon. So David wasn't just mouthing off, just saying whatever comes to mind. He's on his deathbed, basically. And he was, by the way, frail. And, and he, the words that he uses are very specific. And I'm sure he had to have this in mind, this passage in Psalm 19. He's the one that wrote it. God, by the inspiration of the Spirit, had him write this down. So David, who put this beautiful view of all the sufficiency of Scripture together in a concise psalm, is now challenging his son, the future king of Israel, to study the Word, to walk in the Word, so that he and the nation might prosper in the Lord. By the way, there is no other way to prosper in the Lord than through the Word of God. Please don't talk about how, you're, you're, you know, I'm just not prospering. I'm just not seeing the things I had thought I would see as a Christian, when you're not in the Word of God. Makes no sense. If you're not in the Word, you're not growing. And by the way, you can be in the Word and studying the Word and walking in the Word and still go through difficulties. But even in your difficulties, you are prospering. Why? To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. God is still in control, even when trial and adversity and chaos comes near your home. Amen? We never, we never have to fear, ever, man, or fear this world when we have a healthy fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is not a frightful fear. It's not a scary fear, like going to a... I don't like scary movies. I just don't. My wife loves them. When she cranks up one of those thrillers, I leave the room. I want no part of it, man. I remember one time in college, 
And I, was, I went, took a girl for a first date, and we went down to Indianapolis to this theater. And I remember paying. I thought, I can't, I can't believe a movie would cost $4.50. <laughs> and took her to this movie. And one of my friends, Rick Melton from Ohio, good old Christian, this guy, now he travels and sings gospel music. And he's just a great guy. But anyway... Rick was there too. He didn't know I was there until he looked down the aisle and saw me on the aisle sitting next to this girl. He had a date sitting further back. And right at the point in this movie when it, the music builds and you're walking right behind the head of the person and you know something's going to step out or whatever. And he comes down the aisle and he goes, Jiminy! Out loud, right by my chair. I jumped out into the aisle. I was so scared. I can't handle scary, okay? Uh, that's not what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is not that kind of scary fear. It is a reverent fear. It's a holy fear. Isaiah in the temple, when the Lord comes and fills the temple with his train, smoke fills the room. The threshold shakes. And all of a sudden, awe comes over Isaiah. I'm in the presence of God. And the first words out of his mouth, I, oi esmir, I am undone. Meaning, in the presence of God, I'm disintegrating. I'm not feeling like I'm integral. In the presence of God, all of my frailties and my humanity and my sin is revealed. I'm disintegrating in the presence of holy God. I get chills thinking about that. So that's what we're talking about. When we study the word of God, you're studying God's words, God's opinion. Wow, could there be a higher? Look, people who you think are important and have something to say, whoever that is, do you really want to put them up against God's opinion? <laughs> so why do we spend time listening to them and not spend time in the Word of God? So I've kind of gone off track a little bit, but not really, because David's driving this charge home to his son. You need to be in the presence of God in His Word. You need to study it. You need to walk in it. You need to know it. That's the answer for Israel. It's the answer for you as a king. And so that's a good word. Amen? Amen. Now, don't think that this little charge that David gives his son at the beginning of chapter 2 is all that there is. It's not. Uh, I don't think the kings, the recording of the kings, was supposed to be comprehensive. In fact, if you want a further picture of the charge that was given from David to his son Solomon, you would go to the Chronicles. Let me give you the passage. 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse, 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 28 and 29. There, not only does he challenge like he does here, but he goes further, takes almost two chapters to address Solomon on the importance of building the temple of God. Solomon's temple that was built in Jerusalem. 
David has spent the better half, this last half of his life, fundraising in order to provide what's necessary to build that wonderful temple. If you remember way back in Samuel, he actually said that he wanted to build the temple for God. He goes, I'm the king and I live in this beautiful house, this mansion, and God lives in a tent. And so I want to build the Lord a house. And the Lord spoke through the prophet and said to David, you're not going to be building the house because you have blood on your hands. You were a warrior in battle. The one who builds my house cannot have blood on his hands because God's pure and holy, right? So, so it, interesting. Now, think about this. You're David. You're in your 60s. And you want to, before the end of your life, you want to build God a beautiful temple. And God says, mm -mm, not going to happen, not you. But I will let your son build it. Now, if that were me, I got to think that part of me would be like, oh, man. Not that I don't want my son to have the opportunity, but I wanted to build that for God. And he's not going to let me. And now I go into this pity party. Oh, woe is me, because I can't do what I wanted to do. It was my idea, not David. It says immediately he began to travel across Israel and began to fundraise for the beauty, beautiful temple that was going to be built that he would never see. Let me tell you what that is. That's a kingdom perspective. That's what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. You are investing in things that you might never see the result for. Isn't that wonderful? We should be able to rejoice over that. And David did that. That's what he did. So he gives that charge in 1 Chronicles. That you'll, you'll be blessed if you read it tonight. Let that be your reading assignment before bed. Just, just read uh, 28 and 29 of 1 Chronicles. Uh, so, verse 4, that's the, that the Lord may establish His word that He spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. God is giving a conditional promise to David. If you will walk in my ways, my statutes, my commands, and teach your boys to do it, and if they will follow through and do exactly as you're teaching them, there will never be a time in Israel's, the remainder of Israel's history that one of your own offspring will not sit on the throne. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's an amazing promise. No matter what the Assyrians, no matter what the Egyptians, no matter what the Babylonians did, as long as David's sons were obedient and followed God with their heart and with all their soul, God would establish their kingdom. He would, let, he would take care of them and take care of Israel. Don't you kind of wish that God had made that kind of a promise to you with your kids? Um, he did. He did. Jesus, God, walking on earth, said in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Basically, what he's saying is, if you'll walk in my ways and you'll keep God first in your life, then I will meet all of your needs. I will take care of you.
Could you really, as a parent, want to give your child a better charge than that? Because when you are gone, you want to know that they are walking with the Lord and they are receiving God's blessing. They're, they're, God's caring for them. God's taking care of them. You want to know that. So this is what we're called to do. This is for us, okay? God promises that if we put him first, he'll take care of the rest. Now, David gives Solomon advice on how to secure the throne that he would sit upon. Because again, he's a 16-year-old kid. So David now gives some very insightful advice. And from here on for the remainder of the chapter, what David's doing is he's trying to secure the throne for Solomon. So he shares some very important things. Verse 5, Moreover, you also know that Joab, the son of Zeruah, did to me, you know what he did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that, has, that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Wow! Strong words from David to Solomon regarding Joab. Joab was David's commander of the army. Joab was loyal to David. Joab did what he needed to do to provide and bring security and protection for David. But Joab also... He is one of the most complex characters in the Old Testament. He also, at times, was disobedient to David when two things. One, he thought that David was in danger. And two, when it was of his own interest to take care of his own matters, even though David said not to. So an interesting character, David tells Solomon, do not let him go to Sheol in peace. So the first order of business was for Solomon to establish his reign. How? By justice being served. Because when you read this on the surface, you think, man, David's harsh. That's just really harsh. I can't believe on his deathbed he would say that. That's just such a harmful, bitter thing coming out of him. You don't get it. Where we read something in the Bible that we don't understand, generally what it means is you don't understand. It doesn't mean that it can't be explained. Now, there are some things that are so difficult we can't give a clear answer to. But there are many things in the Bible that are just difficult, and we don't take the time to dig in the Scripture to understand them. And we end up never turning to that page in our Bible again. And that's a shame. So let me explain to you what's going on here. This is David telling his son to establish his throne on justice. David started with bringing justice to Joab, who was guilty of the murder of both Abner and the general of Israel's army under Saul, and Amasa, one of David's military commanders. Without a doubt, Joab is, again, Joab is an interesting character in Scripture, believe me. Uh, hard to understand some of the things that he did and why he did it. 
One moment, he's loyal to David, and you couldn't think of a better person for David. The next minute, he's completely going out and doing what he wants and leaving David behind. And so uh, it's interesting that David doesn't mention Joab killing Absalom, his son. He doesn't add that into this. Why? Because I think David came to realize what Absalom did was treasonous. He tried to take over the reign of Israel, and he tried to kill his own father, the king. And so even though he told Joab, do, not, do what you have to do, but don't kill the boy. And Joab went out and took his life, ran a spear right through him. Okay? But David, I think, really knew he had it coming. Justice was served. So he doesn't add that into the list of things that Absalom did, or that uh, Joab did that were grievous. Now, verse 7. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzeli, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. You remember when that was in, in, in 2 Samuel. Uh, it, it's when uh, Absalom was trying to take over the throne. He had amassed a, a great following across Israel. David was so focused in on Jerusalem and wasn't paying attention like he should have been. And next thing you know, Absalom's, he's coming up the mountain of, of God to take over uh, uh, the throne. David leaves. He abdicates the throne to Absalom. And on his way out of Jerusalem, he goes down into the valley. He crosses the Kidron Valley, and he's heading off to the wilderness, to the desert, to run away and hide from Absalom, who is in pursuit of him. Not only is Absalom taking the throne, but he's trying to kill his dad so he can secure the throne for the future. And on his way out of town, he is down. He's bothered deeply. And it was Barzeli the Gileadite who came along and was a fierce support for David. He had very few that were with him, but he did have his mighty men of valor with him. And he had a few leaders, and this was one of them. And so David is telling him, you need to let this man sit at your table. Now when it says, let him eat at the king's table, that was the equivalent of saying, provide a pension for him. Provide a, a land, a piece of land, and a place where he can make a living and provide for his family. So he's really trying to show loyalty to who was loyal to him. And there is also with you, remember this guy, Shemi. Shemi, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanam. In other words, as I was leaving Jerusalem, David was down. David was depressed. He's walking away from the kingship. And, and this guy comes up, Shimei, and starts cussing him out, throwing rocks at him, pushing dust towards him, insulting David. In other words, while David was down, this guy's piling on. It was so bad that one of David's mighty warriors said, David, let me go over there and just go ahead and stick him and kill him. And David's words were, no, in my lifetime, I will not kill him with the sword. It will not happen. I'm not going to do it. Okay? So he showed grace to this guy. Okay? Now, for this guy who mocked David, okay, David had a different justice in mind. 
David had promised Shimei upon his return to the throne that he would not put him to death. Because when he came back, once he took the throne over again, guess who shows up? Shimei. And Shimei's, you know, oh, oh, you know, I hope it didn't, I hope everything's okay with us. What would you do in that situation, you know? You you just run this guy through, you know? You're done, dude. Um, No, David didn't do that. I will not put you to death with the sword, okay? So verse 9, look what happens. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man, Solomon. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray gray head down with the blood to Sheol. So David... I promised I would not touch the guy, and I'm not going to, but you need to take care of business here. Again, this is David. For the sake of his son sitting on the throne, you need to make sure these people who in the past turned on me, came after me, that they don't live to turn on you. You need to bring justice. You establish your throne with justice. That's what he's telling his son. So Shimei was an obnoxious rebel who needed to face justice. It was right for David to keep his vow, but it was also right for him to take, make sure that Shimei received justice without David breaking his vow. So verse 10, Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the, t- and, and the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So at the age of 30, uh, David became the king and he ruled till he was 70. Now, this brings an end to the existence of one of the greatest kings of Israel, if not the greatest, okay? And yet he died the same way that every, mother, every servant, every maid servant died. No different. In the end, we're all equal. I don't care who you think you are and how important you think you are and how much you pay for a coffin and how much you blah, 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 blah. You turn to dust like everybody else. You're not special. David knew that, and he walked this way before the Lord. He was a shepherd. He was a soldier. He was an outlaw. He was a king. He was a fugitive. He was a sinner. He was a saint, and he was a poet throughout the course of his life. And now, all of a sudden, David, the same David, he, he's just a man who has to go the way of all the earth, and he did. According to 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 10, write that down, 2 Kings eleven ten. David's weapons that he used as a young man in battle, his weapons were preserved as relics in the sanctuary, while according to Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, uh, other representative treasures of his reign were buried with him in, the, in his tomb. They do not know where the tomb of David is. They, they actually have a tomb of David in Jerusalem, but I don't, I've never had a scholar yet say that anybody thinks that that was the actual tomb. But you know, you, you create the relic because people will see it and it'll bring more people to Jerusalem. So that's what they've done. But they don't know. At, listen, after the complete destruction of Jerusalem, nobody knows where anything is. I mean, they don't even know what tribe they're from. They're, all the records of what tribe you belong to were destroyed when, uh, when the Romans came in. So, Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established, verse 12. That is a fulfillment of the promise that God made to David. In set, write this down, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. This is very important. 
He said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, there it is, the temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, okay, so that, that's all about Solomon. They, God is actually giving David a prophetic word about his son Solomon on the throne. But now listen to this, verse 16, it turns from Solomon to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Jesus came through the bloodline of David. So when he said that, you know, David's thinking, wow, you know, Solomon's going to live that long? No, he wasn't thinking that. But he just thought it would be down the road. More of his offspring would take the throne. Well, that's true, but he didn't know. He hadn't had no clue. Messiah would come through his bloodline. He had no clue that Jesus, the Son of God, would be of his offspring. Wow, isn't that cool? Uh, so this promise was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the son of David. Now, with Solomon as king, Israel entered, I'll call it a zenith period, okay, a spectacular period uh, in their history. Uh, it but it was largely mental and material. If you remember, you know, nobody was more wealthy than Solomon on the face of the earth. I think to this day, I don't think anybody's as wealthy as Solomon. He was the most wealthy man that's ever lived on the earth. And he amassed so much material goods, okay? But that's the zenith. It's the material and it's the mental aptitude, the, the intelligence. You know what it's like when some culture enters an enlightenment period? What happens in that enlightenment period? Man raises up man. Oh, we've got this figured out. We're so wise. We're so smart. And what happens to God? He's diminished. He's forgotten. Well, that's exactly what happens. So while there's a zenith in the material and the, the mental capacities of Israel, the, the ability to, to produce and to, to uh, grow and establish themselves, spiritually, it went the other way. I'm going to say this. I'm going to step out on a limb and say, I, I, that's why Jesus said it's really hard for a rich man to enter heaven. I'm going to step out and say, if that's what you have amassed is wealth and material things, and you've built yourself on your intellect and the intellect of man, you're well-educated, you know every, you probably are poor spiritually. You, you've, you've forgotten God. Obviously, that's not for every case because Jesus said, he said, it's really hard. He didn't say it couldn't be done. So there are some who were, that, were very wealthy and they remain faithful to God, but it's really hard. So that's just a word for us tonight. I mean, we're in a beautiful facility and they've done such a beautiful job uh, taking their old worship center and turning it into this wonderful founders hall. And we are common people, really. That's what we are. I don't think anybody here has billions. 
and has everything that the world can offer. There are people like that in the world. But what you have, if you have Christ, is of so much greater value than mental, material things. You're blessed. If I remember anything from my grandmother, my mom's mother, um, all I remember her ever saying was, God's been so good to us. They didn't have money. But God's been so good to us. That's the right perspective. And, and you can be rich in God, and the world look at you and they say, oh, it's so sad. Look at them. Oh, my goodness. I'm, it, just, it just pains me to see them the way they are. They have nothing. Oh, you have everything if you have Christ. Amen? <laughs> what more could you want? Wow. And what more could you pass on to your kids than that perspective? They might not follow it. That's okay. That's not on you if they don't. But you need to present it to them. You need to let them know by, by how you live that that stuff's not important. What's important is that you know God. And that's where true riches come from. Amen. Verse 13, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. Now, who is Adonijah from last chapter? He was David's older son, older than Solomon, who, as David became frail, he just went ahead and inserted himself to be the next king and grabbed one of the, uh, one of the priests. He grabbed one of the commanders, and he grabbed, grabbed a handful of people, and he acted like he was the king. You know, that's what it is today. Isn't that what you do? You, you simply say something enough, even though it's a complete lie and fabrication, but if you say it over and over and over and over again, people in the world just go, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and that's what, happened. that's what he tried to do. Okay? So what they're doing today, it's nothing new under the sun. It was attempted years ago. But it's, it's born out of evil. And Adonijah, his mother was Haggith. And uh, uh, by the way, Absalom was his brother. Both of those boys were born of Haggith by David, okay? And, but he comes to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, his half-brother. And, she's, and he's, he comes to her and he, she said, do you come peacefully? Why would she say that? Because he just tried to take the throne. And, of course, he got knocked down. He couldn't take it. And he said peacefully. And then she said, I have something to say to you. Or then he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, speak. And he said, you know that the kingdom was mine and, all that, and, all, and that all Israel fully expected me to reign. Is he serious? This man is delusional. He's imagining that there was this widespread popularity about him being king when he only had an, a handful of influential people, and they were a bunch of malcontents to be on top of that, to support him. And so uh, uh, David actually chose Solomon, not his older brother, Adonijah. Why? Because he knew the heart of Adonijah. All right? and, and most importantly, Adonijah was not God's choice. Solomon was God's choice. So this guy's a joke. 
he come into Solomon's mother trying to appeal to her, okay? And this is what happens when you're full of yourself. You fail to see what is real. You live in your own fantasy world. Boy, we've got some politicians who are living there. Uh, and, and educational leaders. Good grief. Verse 15, however, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's. For it was his from the Lord. And now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And she said to him, speak. And he said, please ask King Solomon. He will not refuse you to give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as my wife. And Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. Remember who this woman Abishag is? Remember her? She was one of David's concubines. She was the one that, as he was an old man, they acquired her to come and lay with him to keep him warm. It literally says they did not have relations. So he did not have relations with her, but this was a common practice. It makes no sense to me. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. But for an older man, he would have a younger woman come and lay with him and he would get off of her body heat and he would be warmer. Okay, that's what this woman was for. So she was made a concubine for that reason. Now, Adonijah says, let me have her as my wife. Remember when Absalom took the th thought he was taking the throne from David? David's running off and Absalom goes to, the, to the Jerusalem, up to the Temple Mount, and uh, his commander or his, uh, his advisor said to him, uh, what you need to do is set up a tent on, on the Temple Mount and you need to have uh, 10 of David's concubine live in that tent and you need to let the people of Israel, of, G of Jerusalem, see you go into the tent and have relations with those women. Let them know that you have now taken from the king his concubine. That's a way for you to establish rule and reign. Okay? Well, now, guess what Adonijah is doing? I want one of David's concubines as my wife. So people will see that I should be the king. Okay? This guy is an idiot. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. You read the commentary and these great scholars go, this guy is an idiot. Okay, verse 19, so Bathsheba went to Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. By the way, I do not believe that Bathsheba was fooled by him. I believe Bathsheba simply took what he said and went to the king because she wanted the king to know this guy's trying to take your throne. And she knew Solomon was wise enough to recognize that. So I'll just pass on what he said to me, to the king. And Adonai, I love this. Oh, how I love this. And the king rose to meet his mother who comes in to the king's throne room, okay? And he bows down to her. Isn't that wonderful? That here's the king of Israel, Solomon, God's choice. And when his mother walks in the room, he bows down. He shows respect and honor to his mother. Children, obey your Lord in, or obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Amen? And, then she, uh, and so then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. 
Now, uh, what's nice about this too is this is a mother who's not trying to manipulate or control her son. She didn't ask for a seat. He gave her a seat. She didn't tell him what he should do. She simply relayed what Adonijah had said to her. Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. She said that sarcastically because that's what Adonijah told her. If you'll say this to the king, he won't refuse you. And she said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as his wife. And King Solomon answered his mother, and why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? <laughs> Look what he says. Ask for him the kingdom also. He's not just after her. He wants the kingdom. For he is my older brother, and on his side are Abiathar, the priest, and Joab, the son of Zeruah. So he is telling her, uh, you should have just come and asked for the kingdom for him. He knew she didn't want him to be the king. He's playing along. This whole thing is very interesting. Now, verse 23, Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God, do to me, do so to me, and more also if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David, my father, and who has made me a house, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. Do you see anything from Bathsheba trying to change his mind? She didn't go there to appeal to give Adonijah the wife that he sought. So King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. That's why I said this guy's an idiot. He knew, if you remember last chapter, he came to Solomon after he became the king and he said, you know, are we good? Is everything okay? You know, and and first he went to the horns of the altar, you know, holding on to the horns of the altar as if God's going to... And, uh, and, and, and Solomon said, we're good for now. We're good for now. <laughs> Solomon kept his eye on him. It didn't take very long, and here he is showing up, trying to plant, surplant Solomon. And Solomon said, well, guess what? Today's your last day. Today. Uh, it might sound as though Solomon is acting hastily and it's unwarranted, but in reality, he's simply acting according to the terms of the parole that he gave to Adonijah, last chapter, verse 52. Let me read it for you. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. He's simply carrying out the fulfillment of that promise because there was wickedness in Adonijah. Um, now, verse 26, And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your estate, for you deserve death. This was the priest who followed after Adonijah, who, who turned on David and was against Solomon being king. And so this is Solomon saying to that priest, he's saying, You need to go to your estate, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death. Not at this time. That's not a good word from the king. That's not what you're looking for. 
And because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David, my father, and because you shared in all my father's afflictions, I'm going to let you live for right now. That's what he's saying. So Abiathar deserved death because he supported Adonijah at the, as the next king. This means that he was in defiance with the will of God or he was undiscerning as to the will of God. Either way, he committed treason against both God and the king of Israel. Yet, even with that being said, Solomon showed mercy and wisdom to Abiathar. Mercy was shown because he had served David in the early years. But we see the wisdom of Solomon at an early age because he's going to exile him. Okay? I will not put you to death at this time. Now, verse 27, So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli, of Eli in Shiloh. Solomon had no clue that he, by sending uh, 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 Abiathar away from the priesthood, by taking him out of the priesthood, he had no clue that he was fulfilling a 100-year prophecy. God told Eli a hundred years earlier, because of the sins of your son and your unwillingness to discipline them and correct them, your, your bloodline will no longer serve the Lord in the temple. And here it is. You know, I, I would imagine that Eli in his lifetime didn't see that happen, so he thought, oh, God's forgotten, or God's, he, he's changed his mind. And then his sons and the sons after him were told of that, and they're like, no, it's not going to happen now. It's all, we're all good. God never forgets. And so here God takes care of business. I've told you guys this. My dad's sitting back here. We, you know, uh, I got spankings when I was a kid. I didn't deserve it. I don't understand. But, <laughs> um, but one of the most painful things was that if I acted up in church, my dad was in the choir, my mom played the piano. She would be playing, and, and me and Lawrence Wainwright were sitting there on the front chair where we always sat down front, and we're goofing off doing something, and she would just go, <laughs> you knew you're in trouble. Or from the choir loft, you get that stern look. And I just knew. So we'd get in the car, head home, and, and, and we'd get there, and uh, mom would, uh, we always had the most wonderful lunch. My favorite was the roast beef and potatoes. Oh, man, was that good. And we'd have lunch. Nothing was brought up. Dad, Mom were laughing. We were having a nice time. And I'm thinking, I got away with this. So I would slip away from the table, go upstairs to change clothes and come down. Hey, Mom, I'm going to go out and play with Coleman. I'll be over at Coleman's house. And about that time, son, he never forgot. But he never did it when I thought. I thought I was getting away with it. He would wait. But he would come back to it. And he'd put the plaster where the misery was, let me tell you. And so, so that's what I knew growing up. Well, that's exactly how the Lord works with us. When we, when we sin against the Lord, you might think you're getting away with something. You don't get away with anything from the Lord. Your sins will find you out. They'll find you out. So when the news came to Joab, for Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar, just like Adonijah had done in the last chapter. Now, now, now you've got the, 
the, the captain of the army, who's this tough dude who never in his life showed a strong uh, relationship to the religion of Israel. He was the battlefield guy. He was the guy who was tested in battle. So he was about blood, about muscles and all that. But now all of a sudden, because he knows he's turned against the, the new king, all of a sudden now he's like holding on to the horns of the altar. The altar was where they would make sac the priests would cut the animal, make sacrifices for God. So he's holding the horns of the altar, somehow pleading with God. That's what he's doing here. Uh, by the way, no human being can be saved by clinging to the horns of the altar. That would have been their religion. You cling to the horns of the, horns of the altar. He didn't know God. He was just trying to all of a sudden practice the religion of Israel that he did not pay much attention to his whole life. No person will be saved for being religious. That has to be the ultimate rejection that a person, a human being can face when Christ returns. The ultimate rejection. To have been religious, well known in a community for your moral reputation, involved in the life of a local church, helping at the work days, giving money to special projects, serving as an usher, yet not having a true relationship with Jesus. You're just religious. And Jesus will say to the religious people, and I think it's a lot of people, He will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Wait a minute, I kept the law the best I could. I was morally sound. No, Jesus came to fulfill the law. The only way you can truly live is through the one who, who conquered and, and accomplished everything that the law gave us. And you didn't come through Christ. This is Joab. This is a picture in the Old Testament of many people today in the, in the world. Um, Spurgeon said this. I, I like C.H. Spurgeon. He said, when Joab was in danger, he fled to, to that which he had avoided throughout his life and sought to make a refuge of that which he had neglected. No man can be saved by religion. Verse 29, and when it was, we're going to just go quickly here now. And when it was told uh, King Solomon, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he is beside the altar. Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go strike him down. So Benaiah uh, came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, The king commands, Come out. But he said, No, I will die here. And then Benaiah brought the king's word again, uh, king word again, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. And the king replied to him, Do as he has said, strike him down and bury him, and thus take away from me and from the, my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head, because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. So shall their blood come back on the head of Joab 
and on the head of his descendants forever. But for David and for his descendants and for his house and for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. And then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck him down and put him to death. And he was buried in his house, uh, own house in the wilderness. And the king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in place of Joab. And the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Ab Abiathar. One theologian said this uh, about that passage. He said, it would have been an insult to, to uh, I'm sorry, it would have been an insult to, to justice not to have taken the life of Joab. David was culpable in delaying it so long, but probably the circumstances of his government would not admit, uh, would not admit of his doing it sooner. So now Solomon has taken care of it for him. Verse 36, And the king sent and summoned Shimei, and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there, and do not go out from there to any place whatever. For on the day that you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain that you shall die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, What you say is good. As my lord the king has said, so will your servant do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem many days. Okay? Um, few things to draw out of that quick little passage. First, it was on the other side of the Kidron Valley that Shimei came up against David and mocked him and ridiculed him and cursed him and spit upon him. And so now Solomon's judgment is, you can't go back over across the Kidron Valley. You stay here on this side. Okay? And secondly, Shimei was associated with the house of King Saul. Okay? And David never dealt with him. He let him live. But Shimei was nothing but a burr in the saddle of David. Okay? He disrespected the king. Thirdly, Shimei knew that Solomon was showing mercy and grace by allowing him to live. He knew the conditions that he would only live if he stayed in Jerusalem. Now look at verse 39. But it happened at the end of three years that two of Shimei's servants ran away to Achish, son of Makah, king of Gath. And when it was told Shimei, Behold, your servants are in Gath, that would have been the land of the Philistines, Shimei arose and saddled a donkey and went to Gath to Achish to seek his servants. And Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. And when Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, No, for certain that on the day that you go out and go to any place, whatever, you shall die? And you said to me, what you said is good, and I will obey? Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord and the commandment with which I commanded you? The king also said to Shimei, you know in your own heart all the harm that you did to David, my father. So the Lord will bring back your harm on your head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever." Then the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon by justice, right? That's a powerful, powerful chapter. Uh, it's interesting to compare Solomon's position when he became the king with that of his two predecessors, Saul and David, okay? Big difference here. Saul and David came up against the same kinds of people who were questionable, and they showed leniency, and those people ended up hurting them in the end. Solomon took the advice of his dad, who learned the hard way, and he dealt with these people right up front, 
very strategically, very with great wisdom, and he had him put to death. Okay, so now the the the, uh, the kingdom of God who that will go forward under Solomon's reign will be a strong kingdom. Okay, so that's pretty good stuff, isn't it? I want to just take a minute before we end and get more than a minute. Take five minutes if we want. If you have any questions about this chapter, or if you have uh, a comment that you'd like to make, try to speak up, and then I'll repeat the question or the comment. Uh, I might summarize it quickly, but we're going to do that so that the live stream audience can hear. I've got a, uh, a mic that uh, they can hear me. So any questions or any comments about chapter two? I always want to, in the future, provide that for you. Yes, Jerry. He did. In, <clears throat> excuse me, in 2 Kings and in Chronicles. Yeah, I'm sorry, thank you. Uh, did Solomon, did, did the Lord ever speak that the name Solomon, he would be king, that Solomon would be king? He did, but it's after the fact that we go to Chronicles and we learn that it was actually spoken to David and to Bathsheba about Solomon. But in the, in the actual passage tonight, you don't see it. So it makes you wonder. Yeah. Yes, Ron. Um, it was interesting that uh, Jesus came through the bloodline of David and how the enemy was always trying to take out that bloodline. Yes. Always at work. Yes. Uh, so those who couldn't hear, and certainly our online audience, uh, just interesting how... Uh, Jesus came through the bloodline of David and how the enemy, Satan, was always trying to attack that bloodline. Any other comments or thoughts, questions? Sure is good to be together. <laughs> Plenty of desserts. I've been told, Vicki uh, shared with me, if you brought any desserts, take them with you. We don't have a place to store the foods. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but, uh, you know, Erlene and Richard Batiste, uh, she heads up the hospitality ministry. They have to pack everything every time we gather and put it back in their vehicle. They take it to their home and they store it in their, at their home. So they're doing a lot of running and picking up and delivering and whatever. We just don't have the room to keep all that stuff. If we had our own place and we had a walk-in or we had a nice uh, cooler, we would keep it here. But you'll need to take things with you. But if you can, wait just a few minutes because some people might want to eat some of what you have. And then you just have a dish to take home and wash, okay? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this wonderful opportunity as a, as a family of God, as Vero Bible Fellowship, to just worship you by the study of the Word. I pray that tonight you would in, 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 embolden us, you would give us courage, that we would receive this same challenge that Jesus gave us to seek first the kingdom and His righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. I pray that we would believe it, we would walk in it by faith, and we would continue to grow in the Word of God. Amen. Amen.